Sometimes we find our friends are fair-weather friends, as we talked about last week. We're looking for help, we're looking for support, and when things turn sour, oftentimes they're no longer there. But sometimes we have friends that, rather than being fair-weather friends, are, are, are friends that seek to help us, but their good intentions end up causing us great pain. We look to our friends for support and sound advice, but who guarantees that that advice is good? Last week, as we considered Job's friends, we looked at them as if they were fair-weather friends. They seemed to be abandoning Job during his time of trouble. Are they abandoning Job, or, as we review what they say to Job, are they friends that have a desire to help Job, but instead of helping by providing poor advice, end up causing him greater pain. We need to consider our advice and be cautious in what we say to those who are suffering. This morning, as we consider the final conversation between Job and his friends, we want to highlight their well-intended desire, but miserable advice that they give to Job. And then we want to think how we can learn from Job, Job's well-intended friends. If you have your Bibles with you, please be turning to Job chapter 22. And let's begin by considering how Job's friends were well-intended yet miserable advisors. Look specifically in these chapters at Eliphaz and Beldad. Are they well-intended and simply bad advisors or is there something else going on here? Notice, for instance, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, we continue to see Eliphaz as he clings to this idea that we've introduced or that we've been talking about, the doctrine of retribution. Bad things only happen to you because of bad things you have done in life. Notice how he brings this out. Job chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Then Eliphaz the Timonite responded, Can a vigorous man be of use to God? Or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous? Or profit if you mere ways picked? Job, you are to be a wise man, but what does it profit God to make you suffer if you're a righteous person? The implication is, Job, there must be something in your life to cause you to be struggling and be having these, these trials to be suffering. Because otherwise, why would God make you go through these things? What does it profit God to make you go through these things, Job? Unless there's something there. There has to be something, Job, in your life. And so, Eliphaz, after he has listened to Job, claim his innocence, claim his sinlessness, claim his blamelessness. In the back of his mind, Eliphaz is wrestling with this idea of the doctrine of retribution that bad things only happen to us because we do bad things. And so he's wrestling with this. He he says to himself, there has to be something in Job's life that I don't know of to cause him to suffer this way. And as Job has been proclaiming and standing up for his integrity and his blamelessness, Eliphaz thinks there has to be something there. And so he moves from the generalities that he has been talking about, and now he begins to specify things that Job must have done. 
to suffer this way. Notice verse 6 following. For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause, and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld your bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty men, to the mighty man, and to the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away, and the strength of orphans has been crushed. Therefore snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and abundance of water covers you. Job, I know that you must have taken advantage of other people. In your business dwellings, Job, you are a wealthy man. You are known as Donald Trump of antiquity. You must have taken advantage of others to get to where you are, Job. You've stripped men naked, taken advantage of them. Or, Job, when you've had the opportunity to help people that are suffering, people that are hurting, instead of you helping them, you've taken advantage of them. You've denied them food and water so that you can have financial gain, Job. Job, when you've seen widows and orphans that are struggling and need help and need someone to back them legally in court, Job, you've denied them of that. Not only have you denied them, Job, you've taken advantage of them. I know you must have done those things, Job. He's making things up. And he's making things up because he can't get it straight in his mind that Job could possibly be suffering for something other than his own wrongdoing. God has to be making him suffer. God has to be punishing Job for something. Certainly Job, in his great wealth, has taken advantage of others and has abused his standing in the community. He's done something to cause God to do these things to him. Do we ever do this in our lives? tell ourselves that something bad has occurred and there must be a reason for it. And maybe we tell ourselves, you know, I haven't seen this firsthand, but it must be true. Otherwise, bad things wouldn't happen to good people. There has to be a reason for why this is happening to somebody. How frustrating must it have been for Job to have a good friend suggest that he has done these awful things? And what is he saying about Job? That he's taken advantage of others, that he's refused to help those in need, that that he's abused widows and orphans. And Job is hearing one of his best friends say these things about him. And he's having to listen to this. While his body is covered in sores, after his children have died, after his, his, the homes of his children have been destroyed, after all his livestock, all his wealth is taken away, now he's having to listen to a friend say, Job, I know this is what you must have done. And now as calls Job, calls Job to repent. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 30. What are some of the things that he says to him? Yield now and be at peace with him, that is, be at peace with God. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. 
If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove righteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then, God, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Your face. When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence in the humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands. And so Eliphaz calls Job to repent. He says, Job, you need to repent. And think about his reasoning. He says, first of all, verse 21 and 22, humble yourself and submit to God. Job, look what you're going through. If you will just humble yourself and submit to God, first step. Be humble before God. Second step, verse 23, Job, you need to turn to God. Third step, verses 24 and 25, Job, you're such a wealthy man who's taken such disadvantage of other people. If you'll just take that wealth that you have and you'll just throw it away and make God the priority in your life. Don't be so materialistic, Job. Then, Job, what's going to happen, step four, verses 26 to 30, is that God will take care of you because he takes care of the humble and the penitent. Doesn't that sound like good advice? Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't that sound correct? Bildad, Job's other friend, also encourages Job to repent. Chapter 26, beginning in, or chapter 25 rather, beginning in verse 1, just a, a short section here. So then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him. That is to say, belong to God, who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops, and upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the the moon has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Bildad continues his argument, the same argument he's had from the beginning, which is, Job, you're claiming that you are blameless, but the reality is, Job, no one can be completely blameless before God. So quit claiming it, Job. Quit saying you're such a good guy, because we all know that there has to be something. He doesn't tell Job to repent, like Eliphaz does, but that's the implication. Job, you need to change your life. You need to get with the program, Job. And so these are the things that these are the things that Job's friends are telling him. It's easy for us to see Job's friends in negative light. On the one hand, it is right for us to do so and, and to recognize that they're giving him bad advice, that they're wrong in saying so, because when we come to chapter 42, God's going to make that declaration. These guys have been saying things, putting words in my mouth, saying things that aren't true. I don't even want to see them. I don't even want to take a sacrifice from them. And so it's correct for us to see them in a negative light on on the one hand. But we also might feel 
that they're our fair weather friends as we did last week because they seem to be abandoning Job. But as we do that, we need to also recognize what his friends are trying to do. Remember, these are friends who likely have great wealth, just like Job had. They leave everything. Remember, we know from chapter 4, or the end of chapter 2, rather. They leave everything for a week, at least. And they come and they have sat with Job, the end of chapter 2 tells us, for an entire week and have said nothing. As they simply commiserate with Job and his suffering. If they truly felt like Job was such a rotten guy, they could have left Job and abandoned him and said, we don't want anything to do with him. But that's not what they're doing. They're telling Job, Job, you need to turn your life around. You see, these are friends who are good friends who have good intentions, but they're giving bad advice. And they're giving bad advice because they're starting from a faulty position of assuming that you only suffer because of bad things you have done, because of sin in your life. And that's their mindset. And so while their advice sounds good to us in many respects, because in many respects what they're saying is true, in Job's case it's not true. And so they are friends who have good intentions but are giving just lousy advice to Job. They've left everything to be with him. They've not abandoned him physically, but they're trying to get him to do what in their mind Seems right. In their mind, you only suffer because of sin in your life. Therefore, Job, you need to repent. But in doing so, they're implying also that God only blesses us because we are sin free. Or if we're sin free. And God only punishes or disciplines because of sin. And they're placing themselves in God's place by judging Job. They're making a judgment that there must be a reason for Job's suffering. And the reason for that suffering has to be his sin. Therefore, Job, you need to shape up or you're going to continue to suffer and things are going to be even worse for you. Consider then Job's response. Job continues to feel compelled to declare his innocence and to declare his blamelessness. Look at chapter 23. Job chapter 23, beginning in verse 2. Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to see him. I would present my case before him. And fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention. He would no, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. 
When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And so as Job is making his defense, he continues to say, Look, if I could just find an audience with God, if I could just lay out my case before him and show him, Look, this is the punishment, this is the discipline, this is the suffering that I'm enduring on this hand, but over here, this is my life. God, just look at my life and you would see that I don't deserve all of this. Because there's a certain aspect of Job's way of thinking in which he buys into this doctrine of retribution and he feels if I could just make my case with God, he would acquit me. Again, look at verse 10. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. If I could state my case before him, I know that I would come forth as gold. Job's not denying God. And even though he seems to believe that God is the source of his suffering, that God is the one that's trying him, he still looks to God as his ultimate refuge. He still looks to God as the one who can redeem him. He still trusts and relies that eventually God's going to deliver him and find that he's pure, find that he is blameless. And because of that, he continues to trust in God. Look at verse 13 following. Chapter 24, verses 13 following. Others have been with those who rebel against the light. They do not want to know its ways, nor abide in its path. The murderer arises at dawn. He kills the poor and the needy, and at night he is a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark they dig into houses. They shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to him as the thick darkness, for he is familiar with the terrors of the thick darkness. They are insignificant on the surfaces, on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn towards the vineyards. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does Sheol those who have sinned. A mother will forget him. The worm feeds sweetly till he is no longer remembered. Isn't that nice imagery there? And wickedness will be broken like the tree. He wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow. But he drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has a shift. He provides with security, and their eyes are on their ways. They are exalted a little while, then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they are cut off. Now, if it is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? Job seems to be wrestling with this idea that you only suffer when you do wrong. Uh, Job believes that eventually God humbles the wicked in this life. And so he's wondering, is it true that God can and sometimes punish the wicked in this life? Job says, yes, there are times that the people that are wicked, God punishes in this life. And yet there are periods of time that they prosper Prosper, he says, for a little while. But eventually they go to Sheol, the place of the dead. Eventually they'll face God's judgment. 
And so Job says, look, sometimes even the wicked prosper. And I know that God's going to punish them many times in this life. But why does the rich man, or why does the the righteous man, rather, sometimes suffer? And so Job says, I can't repent for sins that I have not done. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. For as long as life is in me and breath, the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I de- declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Job says, I can't simply say I've committed sin and repent things thinking that God is going to turn around and bless me. Thinking that God is going to go turn around and reward me. Because God knows and I know that I've not done things to deserve this punishment. And so Job says to say sorry for something I have not done would be a breach of integrity. There are some people that will say sorry to anything simply to find a momentary release from suffering. Kids do that, don't they? We do that sometimes, don't we? If I get... Bad life, my boss, I'll sorry, even if I wasn't the one that did. I can't say sorry, I can't repent for things that I haven't done. I don't know why I'm suffering this way. But I'm not going to say I did it, that I did all these things, Eliphaz, that you have said that I've done, simply for the idea that God will give me blessing. Or that God will take away the suffering that I'm... It's That's what Job seems to have dealt. That is to say, Job hasn't yet doubted God, but he's seeking to understand why he's suffering. He still hasn't found an answer to his search or his journey but he also still looks to God as his refuge, as the one who can redeem him, the one who will recognize his righteousness, the one who will declare him righteous, the one who will restore him. And so what can we learn from Job's well-intended friends as I call Job to repentance, a repentance for sins that he has not done? On the one hand, what Job's friends have said, generally speaking, is right. It is a true statement that no one can be completely blameless before God. It is true that we can't be sinless before God. Uh, On the one hand, we could be sinless because we all have free will. I believe we learned from Genesis chapter 3. And yet we all know from experience in our life that none of us is free from sin. And so that part's true. But it's not true that Job was suffering because of his sin. 
And that's what his friends seem to think. That's the only reason you're suffering, Job. If you will just repent and turn to God, all this suffering will go away. And so generally speaking, we all have sin that we need to repent of. And yes, it is true that repentance means turning from self and turning from sin and turning toward God. That, generally speaking, is the case. It's also the case that sometimes as Christians we observe other people's sin. And when we observe that and we know that to be the case, we have a responsibility. So Galatians tells us, Paul tells us, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, but with a spirit of gentleness. Lest you too be caught in sin. And so there are times when we might observe a brother or sister's sin, and when we do that, we need to call them back to repentance. And in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16 following, Jesus even tells us how we do that. Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 18, If you see your brother's sin, or if your brother sins, go to him in private and show him his sin. If he repents, you have saved your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, go to him a second time, taking along two or three witnesses so that every fact may be established. If he still doesn't repent, take it to the church. And if he doesn't repent then, let him be to you as an outsider or as an enemy. And so Jesus says, here's a process that you go through to help bring someone back to repentance. So yes, there are some times that we do that, but that's when we know someone has sinned. Job's friends aren't doing this with him because they know he has sinned. They're just assuming that because in their minds you only suffer. In that sense, yes, it's right. Sin, when you turn back. It's also true, generally speaking, that when we follow God, we will find blessings and happiness in life. It just so happened that Jay led the song this morning. Your word is a light unto my feet, or a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And when we look at that psalm, the psalm where that song comes from, Psalm 119, verse 105, we find that to be the case. The psalmist says there in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When we follow God's word, we can find a guided direction in our lives. And generally speaking, as we follow that lit path, we stay out of trouble. That's the imagery there. We'll make better decisions that will keep us out of trouble. But that doesn't mean that we will never have struggles. Or that we'll never have hardships. We can't truly choose to follow God if there's never a choice to make. And so sometimes we do face struggles, even as we seek to follow God. Those are things that Job's friends got right. And it's also the case that God provides protection, generally speaking, for us. David writes Psalm 18, and he talks about God being a a protector, a shield in his life. Notice Psalm 18 Verse 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, 
My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to turn with refuge and, and a salvation. And generally speaking, that is true. But that doesn't mean that sometimes we're not going to have trials. Sometimes we'll have suffering. Sometimes we'll have bad things happen to us in life. We can always go to God and cling to God and call on Him for deliverance. But sometimes we might have suffering. What Job's friends got wrong is that they believe that we only suffer because we sin. And when we have that mindset, we begin to judge others based on their suffering. Oh, look what's happened to this guy. He must be a dirty, rotten scoundrel if this is happening to to him. There must be a reason for this. And we begin to judge and look at somebody else's life and say, well, obviously this person is a rotten person if this is what's happening in his life. Sometimes we can see consequences specifically because of behavior. We can see that the meth addict who's tied up in, 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 in drugs and having to walk the streets or, or live on the streets is in that position because of his drugs. But sometimes we wrongly judge others. That's certainly what Job's friends were doing. And the flip side of what they're saying is, is that God only blesses when we follow him. And yet Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 that God sends the sunshine and the rain on the wicked and the bad, or the wicked and the good. He blesses everyone because He created everyone. He loves all of us. We need to be careful when we give advice. We consider also as we receive advice, the source, that just because it sounds good doesn't always necessarily mean that it is. Our friends may have good intentions, but their advice might be wrong. Their advice might be bad. There is one true friend, and that's Jesus. He was such a good friend to you and I that who is willing to give his life so that we might live eternally with God. And he's calling you home. And if you need to go home, if you need that salvation, won't you come as together we stand and sing.